This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon, a unique blend of hunting, fishing, wildlife conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Taurus, award-winning pistols and revolvers. Mossberg, American built, American strong. Habit, our gear, your adventure. Sitting around the DSC campfire this morning with Mr. Donnie Drager, who is with Comanche Ranch. Now, I knew this ranch years ago and flew it back when it was called the Farias, which is a huge chunk of country and some of the best wildlife country, and particularly for white-tailed deer, that uh, you can imagine anywhere in Texas. Donnie, welcome to the campfire this morning. Thank you, Larry. I appreciate the invite and uh, first time on here, so I'm, I'm excited to be with you. So thank you very much. Well, I'm excited for your first time, but I'm hoping that this won't be the last time as well either. There's so much, so many things that y'all are done on that ranch. And to me, there's sometimes research done for research's sake, and then there's research that has really true value. And I know that, that to me, what y'all have done, and what I'm addressing is some of the genetic work, y'all have done some groundbreaking work on on the there on the Comanche dealing with whitetail in the whitetail herd that you have there in particular. What were the basis on some of this? Now we're, we're addressing. You hear a lot about culling, and so that's what I hope we can kind of go to. Is you know, is there is there such a thing as culling? Is there a value in culling, and and a few other things along those lines? So, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about the background on on the uh, project that y'all were involved in, and maybe even continue being involved in now. Well, as as all of our projects, the genesis from that are usually come from conversations from myself and the owner of the ranch, and his charge has always been. And kind of what you said that that if if we're going to you know commit to research project we want actionable management uh, uh, 
we want actionable management uh, studies that, that that helps us at the in the long run. What right. is that? You know, at the end of the day, what you know, what can we improve, do or not do? So that was always a charge from him. And this is no that, that culling study was no different. And he, we sat down in the early mid 2000s and it was about the time that the king ranch and mick hellickson and texas a&m kingsville and uh parks and wildlife were finishing up the king ranch study and the results were coming available that there was no statistical difference between the treatment and the call uh, the call area the treatment excuse me the treatment and control right uh of their of those two areas in at the king ranch and it was an intensive free range uh a call by gun and hunter methodology of it. And they showed no difference between the tr- treatment and control after all their efforts of calling deer. And so we had the idea that, well, we could, you know, they called by, by hunter on, on the ground. And we thought, well, you know, this, at that point there was triple T's and TTP's and for your audience that, that, that both of those use helicopters to capture animals and either you move them or you harvest them right there right. and donate the meat to where users um so that that's kind of the methodology we thought well why don't we use a helicopter and 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 do it in these three areas we have two different types of treatments and and a control area and that was that kind of ramped up the uh, that ramped up the efficiency of it and intensity of it dramatically so that that was the genesis of it and we we ran for 13 years and um cold for seven of those years trapped for the full 13 and collected data and we're currently in the process of writing a journal of wildlife management monographs for that and it will eventually end up being a layperson book as well you talked about the methodology you have that helicopter which is a great tool for so many different things as far as i was concerned did you selectively go after individual animals did you just go after wholesale animals whichever you could catch or I'll give you a brief overview and I'll try to make it quick uh, so we don't bog down on details, but we had two different treatments. One treatment was 18,000 acres in, in size. I mean, they're right. big areas and it, we called it the moderate and all, all bucks were captured randomly. So if a helicopter pilot was told that, Hey, you see a buck and he hasn't clearly been captured that day. And we would mark the deer with a little orange paint on their back. If they got captured that day and released, right. then, you know, jump on him and try to grab it. And it doesn't irrespective to anything else, just find the, see the first one, grab it. And so as moderate came in during the culling years, one and two year olds would be catch and score, take all the metrics and release them. Three and four year olds would be, if they had less than nine points, they would be sacrificed. Uh, Five and a half plus, uh, if they, five year olds and up had to meet, uh, if they, they had to be one, well, if they were 145 and down, Boone and Crockett score, that is, they right. would be cult, right? So then the next treatment area was the intensive. And uh, it was kind of a, uh, it was it was done a little bit more with the mindset of how Kerr Wildlife Management Area uh, culled their way into bigger deer in the pens. Right. So we took the intensive area, it was 3,500 acres. It was completely high fenced. And we called all the way down the yearling age class. And so if it was a yearling with 
less than six points was called. So a five-point yearling was called. Right. A two-year-old with less than eight points were called. And then at three, four, five, and up, it was exactly the same as the moderate. So the real and different the difference between moderate and intensive, intensive was that the intensive got down to the one- and two-year-old age classes. And so that's kind of the methodology of it. And, and we did that culling for, like I said, seven years. Interesting. Now, did you do anything on the does as well, too, in the in either one of the two areas? Well, the does were kept at doe harvest was uh, had a twofold purpose. Um, of course, all doe harvests are random, despite what anybody may say otherwise. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I want to emphasize that because I do get a lot of "Did you turn your doe herd over?" or whatever that really means. If you really <laughs> think about it, it's it's just you know doe harvests are random. You know, you shoot the one that you can get your beat on, but but. <laughs> Uh, we did control the population. We tried to not, we tried to control the pop doe harvest, the doe population. Excuse me, to the point where the ratios didn't get completely out of whack. But doe ratios in the intensive pasture, and we were also killing X number of does each spring, so we could. Uh, collect genetic material yes. and backdate fetuses uh, that would then give us parental uh, some parental uh, add add to our parental matrices right of, of that and also showed that certainly in the uh, in the um, in the intensive pasture we did adjust the mean date we shifted the mean conception date later because we moved the buck doe ratio started out about one and one and a half one to two and it ended up at about one to six one seven right in there so because we harvested so many bucks in that intensive pasture right and and the, how long you said there was like how I guess what I'm asking is how much difference was there from the time you started as far as the peak breeding date as opposed to the peak breeding date once you started really harvesting those animals down? It moved it about 30 days. About 30 right. days. Yeah, yeah, it did. That That's really interesting right there just in itself because you look at, you know, from a, a native range situation, 30 days period over when that fawn is born can certainly make a lot of difference, and particularly in some of those areas, those really arid areas where we have really not a whole lot of food sometimes. Yes, yes, and I think that was part of the results that we saw which we'll get into later i'll if you remind me and prompt me i'll give you the our ideas of what we think became a negative feedback loop in the intensive pasture absolutely um, on that some, some of the results that you found obviously we're talking about changing the, the breeding date which is really interesting what about did you see an increase in antler size is in on either place with what you were doing and let's talk a little bit about i know that y'all had such great genetic work and everything you found that certain bucks too tended to grow and throw bigger or actually throw bigger fawns or bigger antlered bucks than others did as well too well that was that's a lot to unpack because right there, yeah. so let's, start, let's start with the first one so the first one is uh let's let's define the difference between culling your way into big so, so right. let's first off let's define culling yes right? yes that, that I like needs it. to be there are two types of culling culling for uh 
Calling, some people think calling and they immediately think of genetic manipulation of the herd to hopefully have future generations to have larger antlers than past generations, right? Right. And that is a targeted methodology that you would harvest the lower, weaker antlers and hope for larger antlers in the future, right? So that's culling for genetic purposes. Culling for population purposes is just population control. I'm going to go shoot X number of bucks, X number of does to control my population, keep it within a reasonable, uh, reasonably near carrying capacity. Right. And that is not what we're talking about in this study. Uh, that that is uh, that's a great methodology needs to be used in every place that there's density dependence for whitetail, etc. So uh, we're talking about genetic manipulation yes, or the right. attempt of. Uh, so that's one. And then, did we change the antler size? Well, the the short answer is yes. We changed the antler size, but we changed the antler size of the standing crop. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means if I have a hundred bucks and I keep, uh, and if I shoot the fifty percent that is the weakest fifty percent in every age class, right? The remaining bucks all have an average higher Boone and Crockett score. Yes, that's fine and dandy, and it looks great on data, but that doesn't mean at all that you genetically manipulated that herd. You just make what the purpose of that then is to make the available sires for all the does at a higher Boone and Crockett score. Thus, you're hoping that the next years, the next generations off spring will then also have a higher Benacrocket score because their sires did. So hopefully that explains those two concepts. Right. Standing crop is very different than genetic manipulation. And people sometimes don't appreciate that and they get those two things confused. I think a lot of folks have done that in the past. So to me, this is one of the great things that has come out of what you guys were doing there, particularly because, I mean, several things happened as far as my understanding is when you did this. But what about the long-term effect on the intensive culling? What are you seeing there? So what, I mean, I guess just the, the, to give you the final results of the study, and then we can kind of get into more details. Right. But we showed no significant antler increase in uh, past, I mean, and future generations of the call, either moderate or intensive. Uh, and so, therefore, what what we can conclude from that is that culling did not improve antler quality in future generations. Um, and, and remember, we had over, you know, th- this is an extremely intense study, to say the least, that we haven't really talked about the impact of that. We had just shy of 11,000 captures in 13 years. So our, our data set is is really really big oh my um, goodness and, and yeah and so we we did a, a lot of captures that doesn't mean all of them were cold or all of them were let go there's no, a percentage no. there, of course but um and and uh and we assigned offspring uh so we knew who the sire was for over 963 uh uh, deer. The, uh, 963 captures came in. We knew who their father was through a genetic matrix that Randy DeYoung and Masa Onisha, who was uh, who the, uh, the uh, he was our PhD student, Masa was, and right. Randy's our genetic professor, of course, out of Texas A&M Kingsville. So 
that is that kind of that, that there's some of that data and it's really just kind of come depends on what rabbit hole you want to go down when it comes to this study because there's they're long and deep rabbit holes and, and they can take you a while to get through <laughs> sounds like we have to sit down around the campfire numerous times before this is all yeah. over from from a pure landowner hunter perspective of okay i've i've got a deer herd i i want to call i've got to take animals off you know those kind of things where did you see the bigger sire let me put it this way what style antler buck had a tendency to to produce the best antlered offsprings you know down the way was there any particular thing that was that was a, a key or something that you could see that was very obvious no, there's no individual antler trait that would give you that hint. So what you're hinting at is called a breeding value. Yes. So what we determined uh, with all these sires and all these genetic matrices that connect this buck is the brother of that buck and this is the offspring of the two of them. And, and as that all that spider web gets interconnected, these genetic matrices that, that are beyond my knowledge, by all means, this is <laughs> really too. smart people involved in the study, such as Randy and Massa. Right. And so uh, th- those things come out with a breeding value assigned to any given buck that had enough information on uh, relatives and offspring that we captured. So a breeding value is basically, it's a plus or minus, uh, a plus or minus number. And if it was a zero number, that means he would be, that offspring for that buck uh, would be exactly average for that cohort of any given year gotcha. or given year, right? Now, if it's a plus number, let's say it's plus 20, a buck is given a breeding value of plus 20. That's a pretty good breeding value. Um, that means that he his offspring will average on 20 inches higher than the average of that particular cohort. Right, that um, age class, right. So that, it gets a little confusing, but a good short way to think of it is just, well, that buck's going to produce 20 inch, inch bigger deer or bucks than, than the, you know, than, than the average. Right. So, and then there's also negative ones that, and, and so when you do a scatter plot, you know, all these darts on an X, Y, all these dots on an X, Y axis, <laughs> there is a general trend of relationship between the size of the sire and how big the uh how big the offspring would be and so you have this general uh upward trend as on your x and y axis as it goes to the right there's a slight upward trend right but it is so scattered that that you don't have a significant relationship uh, on that and i mean statistically significant so what that there's a bunch of fancy talks are saying that the relationship between a uh, actual buck's antlers versus his offspring is not strong enough for you to predict just by looking at his antlers how good his offspring will be. And what causes that? And, and, and people will immediately go to, well, how is that possible? Why? Why is that when inside... The deer breeder industry has shown that that relationship exists. Uh, they can they can take a large antler buck and then 
produce more large antler offspring. Well, they are, there's several differences between the wild deer that we were testing and and, and working with and, and deer breeder industry. One of them is that that they have control over the the, the dam, the the female, right? right. And probably have a lineage there. And the other one is there are virtually zero environmental impacts on yes. those breeder deer. Where on the contrary, uh, our wild deer that were being tested on large ranch acreages in southwestern Texas um, have an extreme amount of environmental uh, impacts. It, was it a young mother that was? that was bred and she wasn't as quite as good a mother as a three or four year old. Was it a drought year? Did it, you know, ex, it was it a excessively hot year that, you know, these, these all are just examples of what can be environmentally impactful to a deer's uh, life and thus suppressing his ability to show maybe his true genetic potential. And so, and, 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 and let's caveat all this. All of these deer that were in this study were fed, protein feed at a very high uh adequate level right. across branch so we're not we're not dealing with you know it wasn't a nutrition thing yeah free range as we're dealing with fed deer right uh, and and basically it, the relationship between antler characteristics of a sire and the and the antler characteristics of his offspring were overwhelmed by environmental impacts. That's the best way to think about it. That relationship exists and it is there, uh, but it is extremely low. Like uh, to give an example, a yearling bucks antler traits are, uh, I think, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I may actually have that uh, in front of me, but uh, the um, yearling bucks antler traits are, Hang on, I'm looking at my okay. old slides. Actually, <laughs> but it was it was um, it mostly a. Um, it's about 65, 75 percent is controlled by the environment, and just a little bit. The, the rest of that, then there's some other controls, and then maybe like 15 percent of a yearling buck's antlers traits were controlled by um, uh, genetics. Yes. Now that number gets bigger as they get older, and that's kind of weird to think about. But that so the environmental impacts go get weakened as the deer gets older. But um, it, okay, and to the point that approximately here I found a slide. Finally, approximately forty percent of a mature buck's antler size is due to inherited genetic traits. Therefore, the other sixty percent is due to different types of environmental. Er and variation and that's a mature buck it's really really low when it's a yearly so you know over the years i've had opportunities i've been involved in this a long long time and we've had some very small high fence properties that we dealt with where we had a little bit of control and, and i've seen certain bucks and we tried different buck duck doe ratios and all that kind of stuff going back back to the 70s and uh we would fight, catch a really big buck or have a really good buck antler wise for his age would be phenomenal and we would put that thing in a pen with six or eight does into maybe a 30, 40 acre pasture or something like that, just to try to see what would happen. And every year thereafter, his antlers were never quite as good as that they were as a three-year-old. And to me, that was an environmental thing. And the fact that, hey, he, he chased like crazy. And he's one of those deer that did a lot 
of reading, obviously, uh, for a while. And so every year after his best year as a three-year-old, his antlers probably were about anywhere from 10 to 20 points, Boone Crockett points lower than they were at his best set of antlers. So that to me would be a, a really good environmental kind of a, a example is what we're talking about here. Yeah, I think that that's it. And then, you know, on the other end of that spectrum, we had deer that were 12 years old and <laughs> hit their best antler, hit their best antler trait to 12 years old. And, and uh, so, and then, you know, we had one buck that was, um, that was a, I guess his best antlers would probably put him in the 190s, gross BNC. Right. And he happened to be, you know, in like a perfect scenario, he happened to be the most prolific breeder <laughs> of the study. Of all the 11,000 captures that we had, we Is could that right? more buck male offspring from him than anyone else. Take a guess on what his largest antlered offspring was at five years old. Oh my gosh, at, at his largest offspring, probably yes. 190 or so. 145 and <laughs> just barely made the call. He just barely, okay. The other six, uh, no, the other five offspring, male offspring that he had, didn't make it to the culling regime. Did not make it to the culling Really yeah. interesting. Really he interesting. Made the skin of his teeth, that one. <laughs> so that tells you that that the confusion, and that one really blows people away, especially when I put the slides up and I do this right, talk. Right. It blows people away because they're like, you know, it, that that's so counterintuitive to what what we've been taught uh, exactly in the last probably 25, 30 years about white-tailed genetics. It's amazing to me the pro the program and the project that y'all have been involved in there is just just true, totally phenomenal. I do want to come back maybe a little bit later on in the deer season, and I'll catch you somewhere. I'll I'll meet you for a cup of coffee down there in y'all's part of the world, and we'll sit down and talk about this a little bit more too. And and because uh, as you mentioned, there's so many different rabbit holes to go down on this, and uh, to where there's absolutely fantastic information that y'all have gleaned with all this research that you've done. We talked a little bit about. Does I want to ask a question again to dealing with does? Obviously, you didn't do any selection, and I loved your description of which one to take years ago. Gene Fox, who worked on the Curd Wildlife Management here for a long time, when Gene was asked the question, they'd say, "Which does should I shoot?" And he goes, "The one that you get the crosshairs on long enough to pull the trigger. That's the one you take." And essentially, that's what you were talking about here—a very random kind of take. And uh, are you learning anything as far as what with this particular project? Obviously, you've got a lots of genetic work on the bucks. Anything on the those there no not really um other than you know what we the genetic material we collected to see who was related and who right. you know if there were does that came out of ind individual bucks but no there was no that was not a that was not a uh a uh one of our goals for the right project. not one of the priorities really to begin with right does. it was more you know the does we know that those have no visual phenotypic display of no. the trait. So we wanted to concentrate. We really went about this that after the King Ranch study where they would 
they were doing, they were attempting it more like hunters would attempt it. Right. Uh, we kind of decided that, well, let's take it to the extreme and to the point that no one in the world is probably going to be able to replicate this. No, but no. the point would but. be if, if we can't make improvement, genetic improvement of this deer herd through this methodology, then then this is a conversation (laughs) that probably needs to fade away uh, about deer management. Because if you can't do it with the way we did it, then that line in the sand is so far out there that what's the point? Um, and, and at the same, at, at the same time, you know, as you're aware, the Comanche faith study with the, the book that had recently come out, right. you know, we, we can document that just a generation or so, just a generation of, of, of whitetails, of, of bucks being on, on feed, protein feed can gain them 16 inches compared with all things being held constant compared to their neighbor that doesn't have protein. Feed. Right. So if I can gain 16 inches in a generation with feed and all the models that used from our data, Stephen Webb with Texas A&M has a really nice model showing that if you cold intensively and perfectly for the next 20 years, you might gain two to three inches. Um, I think it's pretty clear what your path should be as a, as a manager. And, and so that, that's, that's kind of sums it all up. You know, it, it really does. I, I've gotten, Tickled, aggravated, all those kind of things about some of the culling programs that have gone on. And, and I've been involved in some of them, particularly during the early years. And then I, I did some of the, uh, let's compare these two and found that, yeah, it really didn't make a whole lot of difference. Where the difference to me came in on the culling is to cull to make certain that I have that population, both bucks and does, at a level that that property or that landowner with feed can support on a day-to-day basis kind of thing. And so when you get right down to kind of what we're talking about, if somebody comes to you and says, okay, I, I want to do this management program. I want to improve my bucks. Your question, uh, that question is going to be answered by you basically by saying nutrition, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nutrition is, is key. And that, you know, all the studies that we've done here, we've really kind of have a renewed uh, um, sense of our both of our our supplemental feed program as well as our habitat manipulation right. and or habitat restoration uh, programs as well so the, you know we we really concentrate on those areas right what I've tried to do the last bunch of years is, is to concentrate with my management stuff or the people some come talk to me about it. I said, well, you want to, number one, want to control the numbers, keeping them what you can afford in terms of, you know, having that population to where there's daily good food on a day-to-day basis. From that, let's determine, you know, how many bucks and does we're going to take off each year. And then, you know, if you see a buck that you don't like, his antlers, you know, let's go ahead and shoot him kind of thing. As long as we keep the numbers right and keep a buck to doe ratio, maybe a one to 1.5 or one to two, kind of depending on where we are kind of thing. But to me, it's more about culling is more about keeping that population in tune with what that habitat can produce or what you're willing to put into it in terms of feed. Yeah, I agree with that. And and, and that's where, I, you know, I still am an advocate for culling. But oh, yeah. Culling to reduce your reduce your uh, your population and or your feed bill. And if that includes you know, the buck herd that has traits, antler traits that you're not, you're not a, 
into or don't like, then by all means, take those out and don't feed them. Don't don't let them take another bite of a great four, but when another deer could. <laughs> exactly. And, that, that by that way, I, I believe culling does work in that sense that, you know, it's a good plan. It's a good idea. You know, get rid of the mouths that you don't need um, on the range. But don't think that every time you take one of those uh, less than th- those lesser quality antler bucks out that you're making a genetic change for the future. That's the part that I want people to kind of draw a real hard line on in between is that uh, you can, you can call for this purpose, the population purpose, but don't, don't fool yourself into believing that you're making this genetic <laughs> change. By the way, if I may, it, it, I find a little liberating. Uh, and I, <laughs> there's a funny, the last time I gave the, one of the last times I gave this talk was at TWA, which right. I know we, we were just at, and my, this guy, I always like to tell the story. This guy was sitting in the audience and he was next to my wife and unbeknown to him, it was my wife. And I finished <laughs> it up and, and I, at that point, I, at that point I, ne- I just kind of finished and there was no, I, I don't know. I guess I just didn't have a good wrap up. Uh, uh, and the guy leaned over to my wife, to him, a complete stranger. He, he just goes, well, okay, so culling doesn't work. This doesn't work. Uh, what What are we supposed to do? You know, and he was just thoroughly confused, the poor guy, or, or just left on right. the cliff, you know. So I, from that point on, I started thinking about it. Well, I was like, well, that's a great question. I need to answer that question. So for me, Culling is very liberating. I mean, th- this 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 study has become very liberating from a ranch management standpoint because I no longer am overly concerned about either end of the spectrum. Right. So let's say the the left side of that spectrum is I have a real junky deer. You know, let's call him a you know the, the infamous three year old spike, right, right, Larry? We've all heard about that. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, let, you know, and or the deer that has less than fourteen inch inside spread. Right. Just you know, an eight point that's sneaking through your some your your antler restriction uh, category. You know, I hear this one a lot too. And he's out there and he's just breeding like crazy because nobody can shoot him and because he's not legal and and you know he's just ruining our genetics. Why well, don't worry about that guy because he's. No, he's not. He's not ruining your genetics. It's, you know, it's just another buck in the in the gene pool that, and it's like adding one more. It's adding or taking out a drop of water in the ocean. You can't tell. And so the other side of that coin, on the right side of that spectrum, I feel the same way. If I have a really gigantic buck, uh, we don't overly concern ourselves about. Oh, we really need to keep him till he's nine, ten, twelve years old, so he can breed as many deer as possible. We don't know. He may have these unbelievable genetics, but or, or antlers, but he may not have a great breeding value. That's what all this comes down to. The the deer with the highest breeding value in our entire study, in our entire study, the deer that had the highest breeding value had a gross Boone Crockett score of one thirty two. <laughs> So you tell me where we're supposed to go. I, I can show you a 190 that had a really low breeding value, and I can show you a deer that was dead smack in the middle of the herd. I mean, literally right there right. in the middle bell curve, and he had the highest breeding value of all. So I, you know, so that what that tells me is stop worrying about it. Just just go about and manage your ranch and your habitat and your population levels and your buck doe ratios and all that 
Al Brothers producing quality whitetail stuff that we learned as, you know, that was this, a, you know, that I, I grew up reading as a teenager and, and, and uh, just. Then I knew the guys watched them do it kind of thing. So. <laughs> yes, yes. Very, very interesting. I, Donnie, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining us here around the campfire this morning or whatever people are listening to this. I truly appreciate it. If people want to learn a little bit more about that particular study, the genetic study, what's the best source for people to go to for the right time now, being until you get the book? There are other uh, uh, podcasts that I don't. Uh, you know, like that, that they can be directed to, but um, I don't have. There's some a few articles out there. Right. It's a bit scattered. So again, we're working on the JWM Journal of Wildlife Management article, right. and uh, uh, that will uh, hopefully be done here this year in 2023, and then in 2024, I'll start working on a, uh, a layperson book, and it'll come out after that. Uh, Bronson Strickland and I went in depth on this subject in the uh, Deer University podcast that okay, he has. Good. Uh, we, we had an hour long conversation on it, so that that's a uh, that's a source that I guess I would that that comes to mind. Absolutely. Well, what we'll try to do, if, you know, with your permission, I'll come back and visit with you a little bit more in the future, and we'll pick out one rabbit hole to go down to and discuss it, and then maybe the next one we'll try to find another rabbit hole to go through. So, But I want to tell you how much I, I really appreciate you joining us here today for a discussion about the genetic side of, of real deer management, and uh, look forward to catching up with you a little bit later on, and, and hopefully, as I mentioned, it'll be around a campfire somewhere down in that deep south texas country one of these days but thank you so very much for joining us you bet larry thank you and uh yeah i hope hope to catch up with you soon we will do so ladies and gentlemen join us right here again next week around the campfire thank you for being with us today dsc's campfires has also been brought to you by the crown bar in the grange and round top texas texas wildlife association double nickel taxidermy h3 white till solutions and Burnham Brothers Game Calls.